Take your Bible and turn to Isaiah 58. All right, Isaiah 58, starting in verse 1. Cry aloud and do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily. Delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted? You see it not. Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast? And a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness? To undo the straps of the yoke? To let the oppressed go free? To break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer You shall cry, and he will say, here I am. Do you take away the yoke from your midst? The pointing of the finger and speaking of wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt, and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight the holy day of the Lord, honorable. If you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we pray that you would speak, not just in the reading, but in the preaching, and that we would hear both the reading and the preaching. Give us faith where we have little to none. We pray for Christ's sake. 
Amen. Amen. One of the challenges in telling a good story is figuring out how to create a sense of drama that normal people appeal to, connect to, or resonate with. In fact, actually, if you kind of go through and look at your children's movies, look at the Disney movies of my childhood, and pay attention to, like, how many of the movies, it's horrible, how many of the movies both parents die at some point in the movie? Like, wow, that is a disproportionately high percentage of really traumatized children in the world. Uh, if you look at just the Disney movie. What, what are they doing, though, is that in order for those children to somehow be kind of manufactured into the heroes of the story, there has to be some sort of kind of something that creates a sense of drama in their life. And part of that is because in, in so many ways, kind of, we might think that normalcy is boring, Right? Normal daily life is just kind of boring. It's what we kind of motor through. It's just kind of there. And I'll let you in a little secret. It, it's actually true, really, for, for preachers and for sermons as well. It's easy to take passages that are kind of flamboyant and over the top and really kind of inherently dramatic and to capture our minds and to capture our hearts and to capture our attention. When we have burning bush or we have resurrections or we have God becoming man, it, it becomes so very easy in some cases. But it gets to be really challenging when you get to passages like this that lay out the dangers for normal religious people. Really, Isaiah 58, and I'm going to cover 59 as well, though I didn't read it. You can read that at home. Really kind of address, or at least the way that we're going to look at them today, address as a starting point the dangers for religious people. And by religious people, I mean the kind of people that we might perhaps be ourselves. They're the people that look good on the outside that seemingly act good on the outside. They're the kind of people that when we look at their lives, we're not going, wow, they're a hot mess. Whew. They're the kind of people that we like to have in our neighborhoods. They're the kind of people that we're not really angry when they run the HOA. They're the kind of people that we don't mind having as our coworkers because they're not absolute scumbags. They're the normal good people. Now, for many of you, if you're maybe perhaps a little older in the room, depending on the part of the country you grew up in, you might think those were the, the, the average people that I lived with my entire childhood. Certainly growing up outside the Charlotte area, for me, that, that's, if you asked what people were like in Matthews growing up in the circles that I ran, it was just the religious, normal religious good people. Well, they may or may not have known God, they may or may not have known Christianity, but they were the normal, religious, good people. Now, interestingly, if we look at that kind of from that perspective, Isaiah 58 and 59 hold out really two very significant dangers 
for normal religious good people. And I, I use that term good loosely. They hold out kind of two rebukes to challenge us for things that we are to be very strongly warned about. And the danger here is that if you already can kind of see where this sermon is going, is the problem is that realistically these are going to apply to us perhaps a little bit more than we might feel comfortable with. The first one is in chapter 58, verses 1 through 5. Isaiah is addressing the people of Israel and he's addressing their immorality. He calls the beginning, cry aloud, don't hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, uh, declare to my people their transgression. So God's told Isaiah to speak, to declare to Israel, the house of Jacob, their sins. And you would expect at this point for there to be kind of a list of the sins, right? Oh, they're murderers, they're idolaters, they're uh, adulterers, they're liars, they're, they're whatever else they are. We'll go through the Ten Commandments, they're all there, they don't honor their father and mother. But interestingly, in verse 2, that's not where God begins. He actually says, no, look, these are the people that on the outside, they look like good people. They're the religious people. They're the respectable people. In fact, actually, verse 2, they seek me daily. And they say they delight to know my ways. Hang on now. Wait, so, so the problem in the text is with a person that is actively, in some sense, actively pursuing a relationship with God. How, how can that be a bad thing? How, how can there be a problem for that person that's actively pursuing a relationship with God? Usually that's the thing, you know, pastor, that you're like, hey, it's good to pursue a relationship with Jesus. And, and it is, actually. But it continues. They seek me daily. They delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness. And that's where shots fired from the Lord on high. They act like they're people that actually care about holiness. Implication, they're not. They're pretenders. They're frauds. They're fakes. They, they pretend like they care about righteousness. They pretend like they care about holiness, but instead they forsake the judgment of their God and they forsake his righteousness. In fact, actually, he then presents this kind of hypothetical theoretical conversation between them in verses uh, three and following where they say, well, look, we, we, uh, we tried to honor you. We fasted. Right? Fasting is a good thing, a, a way to devote ourselves to the Lord. We fasted to you, God, and yet you didn't see it. We humbled ourselves. You, you didn't acknowledge it. We, we've done our part. How come you, God, are not doing yours? Ooh, that sounds a little bit rude. Right? My goodness. You would say that? But it's interesting, really, verse 3b, the Lord begins to explain what the heart of the problem is. Is that in the day of your fast, you're still actively chasing your own pleasure. 
And while you interestingly even have set yourselves apart to the Lord in a fast Israel, you're still oppressing your workers. Now, what's being described here is really an approach to religion or Christianity or approach to relationship with God in, in the Old Testament. Um, it, it's what I'm going to call kind of like box-checking Christianity. It, it, it's an approach to say that like, hey, if I do my part and check these boxes, then God has to be happy, He has to be pleased, and He has to kind of give me the things that I want. <laughs> And the the problem with it is, is that when you reduce anything to a list of boxes to be checked, well, it loses the warmth, the depth, and the reality behind it. So that, what's getting at here is, you're a people that really at their core is what he's saying to Israel here who in some sense is trying to manipulate me. Where you're trying to, verse 4, actively even fast like yours just, just so your voice is heard and you get what you want out of it. It's just getting what you want. Now, this is an intriguing thing because really this kind of box-checking Christianity is a Christianity that that looks good on the outside but is empty and dark and vacant on the inside because it's a Christianity that is all about externals and not internals. In fact, actually, that was what we read earlier with Jesus dealing with the Pharisees and the lawyers in it, where he, he's actually, he hurts their feelings. He, he's almost downright rude to them. They're even like, you're insulting us. Well, yes, because he's aggressively going after them for, for doing all the things that make them look the part without having the warmth and the reality and the substance beneath it. Now, with the Pharisees, it's, it's a rebuke that actually extends all the way to conversion. They're not Christians, which is why he is so strong against them. There is, however, I would say, a particular danger for us in the room. A very grave danger that we reduce Christianity solely to a checklist to something that seems manageable, something that that stays external to my desires, something that I can manage that will make God happy but doesn't demand any real heart change. Some of you I might humbly and gently point out that you maintain an angry heart or bitter spirit, or jealous spirit, or a hateful spirit, whatever, and you nurture it. You may be doing all the things on the outside that, that make you look the part, but on the inside you're planting a garden of the root of bitterness and watering it and fertilizing it 
pulling the weeds around it so it grows stronger. You're growing a problem inside. Friends, be warned. This is a danger, and it's a, a very grave danger, so much so the Lord's even writing it in a scripture. It comes out repeatedly throughout the Bible. The danger of maintaining the appearances on the outside. But not maintaining the reality on the inside. Please don't be that person that nurtures the wrong spirit inside, nurtures a spirit of your pleasure, nurtures a spirit of your own delight and desires. It's interesting, and he gives a kind of an example of this at the very end of the chapter, which is the Lord's Day of Sabbath. And it's interesting as he, he holds it up as a contrast to say the Sabbath was given to you as a design of part of creation so that you may know the Lord. And interestingly, what are they doing on the Sabbath that's the problem? Well, verse 13, their own pleasure. Mm-hmm. Idle speech. Now, I, I don't think that that simply just means talking about things that are not the Lord. I think you're allowed to talk about, you know, whether the baby should have a nap or not in the afternoon and what time that baby should get that nap. But a day that's spent pursuing our own delights. It's just really, it's an interesting thing because what he goes after them for with just this idea of the Sabbath, it's not that they've devoted it to evil. Right? It's not that it's like you have a people that are going, well, hey, you know, it's, it's the Sabbath, I'm going to go on a murder spree. Or I, I, it's the Sabbath, I'm going to start, you know, writing slanderous people, you know, pieces to send on the, well, you know, to the newspaper, on Twitter, on you know, Instagram or whatever. Like, it's not like they're actively planning evil. It's that it's a day that's set apart for God that they're just using for their own pleasure for their own joy, their own delight, and not God's. It's an emptiness inside. So, all right, danger number one, the checking-the-box kind of Christianity. Danger number two shows up in chapter 59, and it's with the same category of person, a person who seems religious, who seems right on the outside, but verses one through eight lay out that this kind of person oftentimes will look the part and still be staggeringly cruel to their neighbor. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, his ear dull that he cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins uh, have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Sin is a problem, we know this. While your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lives, your tongue muttered wickedness. No one enters suit justly. You don't have just lawsuits. Uh, no one goes to law honestly. You're weaponizing the law against your neighbor. Uh, and they rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. It, it, it is the language of corruption against their neighbor. 
Look at verse 6b. Their works are works of iniquity. Their deeds are violence in their hands. Their feet run to evil. They're swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, desolation, and destruction. Are high, uh, people that, while even actively claiming to walk with God, can be staggeringly cruel to their neighbor. Now, I, I will say, I, I am a man who's grown up in the South. I think Charlotte is the furthest North I've ever lived for an extended season of time. Well-versed in Southern culture. And friends, I would say these two dangers are the warp and woof of the, the Southern culture. It is the beating heart of the South. To be that kind of person that looks the part on the outside, that can be easily empty on the inside, and with either the phrase of bless your heart, or have you been praying for so-and-so, precede some of the most hateful, cruel, and mean-spirited words the English language has ever said. It is shocking, actually. Like, if you actually step back outside of the culture, outside of the conversation, outside of the moment, and listen carefully to what follows, bless their heart. Have you? Sometimes those words that come after that are like, it's the voice of Satan that you're hearing next. Right? It's the voice of hell that you're hearing. Evil words. But because we said bless your heart, it's okay. It's fine, right? Or the more kind of sanctimonious version of that of, have you been praying for so-and-so? They're struggling with such-and-such. And it becomes a, a venue... an opportunity, a pathway for cruelty. Cruelty, such shocking cruelty. I'd love to pretend, again as a son of the South, I'd love to pretend that our Victorian civility was not often used as a weapon for emotional destruction. But then I would be lying. And friends, I'm lovingly going to say these are our dangers. These are not the dangers that are, are written for the bad weirdos out there. These are the dangers that are written for the people who are claiming to be the religious people of their time. And notice, really, what they're, what they're being confronted by, by the Lord, is there are people that say they're doing religious things, but they're doing the religious things to make themselves happy and, and to please themselves and not their God. And then, while they're doing those religious things, they're being mean and hateful old cusses toward their neighbors. And you think, man, that... that that actually can very easily hit a little bit closer to home than we might like to admit. And there's a significant problem with that, really. 
chapter 59, uh, verses 9 through really 15b, you can see, or 15a, I'm sorry, where the, the ESV breaks it up handily in the middle of verse 15. Verses 9 through 15a of chapter 59 begin to explain the real problem with this is that our individual sin and struggles with these two types of sins of this kind of uh, what we really would call hypocrisy, <laughs> box-checking Christianity, hypocrisy, uh, and the cruelty, the consequences of those sins, not eternally, but the consequences of those sins inside time and space are contagious. Right? They're, they're very contagious. Those consequences, the the destruction that we bring about with our sin doesn't just stop with one of us, but they spread. My favorite illustration with this is thinking of sin as glitter. I've used it many times, but it is such a good, good illustration. Back when I was a youth pastor, there was actually a website that I cannot confirm nor deny that I've used, uh, where you could actually pay money and they would mail an envelope of glitter that had a little rubber banded bit in the middle of it so that when you opened it, it went poof and just sprayed glitter everywhere. It was not expensive. <clears throat> not at all. But very effective. And so you go to open your envelope and not knowing what's in there, it just begins to kind of spray glitter everywhere. And, and how long is that glitter there? Forever. If you're currently sitting in this middle section, you will be taking glitter home from the person who wore a glittery shirt three weeks ago in that third row. It's still been there after we've used those chairs for prayer meeting. Some people have taken glitter home for the last three weeks. It, it just, it stays and it spreads and you always have it. Right? I walked home the other night and one of my family members was like, Dad, you have glitter on your face. I, I don't know, I got it. Probably from one of those chairs. From whichever one of you wore that shirt three weeks ago. That's what verses 9 through 15 are going like saying, look, the the consequences of your sin inside time and space are are contagious. There's consequences for them, and and your sin brings about injustice, and it, it sours the whole relationship. So that justice and righteousness in a community get pushed to the sides. Verse 15, where even truth begins to be lacking. And it's weird to think about this, that really the tolerance of that hypocritical Christianity that only focuses on the outside and never addresses the heart, and the tolerance of that Christianity that allows me to be about my spiritual growth while being cruel to my neighbor really, in light of Isaiah 59, kind of sours the whole bunch. In fact, actually, I I could even make a, a stronger point this way. Would you like to destroy Christ Ridge? This is how you do it. This is how you do it. The Lord's actively, interestingly, giving us kind of a a blueprint You want to seek to do harm to the church, this is how. 
Let yourself maintain a rigor in action that never touches your heart, where your heart is dead on the inside, where it's cold, closed off, inaccessible, or perhaps even just too tired to be reached, and where you comfortably let a tolerance in your mind that allows you to be cruel to your neighbor, either in what you think or here in the South with what you say. You probably don't think of it that way, do you? That allowing that cruelty of speech? Well, this is it's destruction to the church. Now, the good news is, fast forward just a bit. I'm going to skip ahead to the end, just come back. But you're not bigger than Jesus. Sorry, it's his church. He's going to win. But boy, you can really take us through a hard road in between. Now, the interesting thing is, is kind of these two problems, this hypocritical kind of box-checking Christianity and this hatred of neighbor, are held up as problems in comparison to really a portrait of what real Christianity looks like. In verses 5 and 6, I'm sorry, 6 and 7, get my numbers correct, I can count. Isaiah 58, verses 6 and 7. Is this not the fast that I choose? So you have this, again, the people here are having this kind of, uh, of relationship with the Lord in which it's self-centered, it's self-serving, and it's entirely externally based. You want to know what the, the, the obedience looks like that I long for, the Lord says, verse 6? It's this. Loose the bonds of wickedness. Undo the straps of the yoke. So that's kind of, you know, again, the burden that's placed upon. The the freedom to let the oppressed go free. Now, in this case, it's, again, not talking a political oppression or such, but a spiritual one. And to break every... what What does Christianity look like? It looks like victory over evil. And interestingly, that victory over evil, the Lord's getting at, is internal first and external second. Not external first and internal second. And then, consequence of verse 6 is verse 7. To share your bread with the hungry. To bring the homeless poor into your house. When you see the naked, to cover him not to hide yourself from your own flesh. It's a, a compassion that spreads to the people around us. I, I think it's interesting that really, if you look, verses 6 and 7 are, are the, the, the counterpoints to the two problems. Problem number one is this kind of hypocritical external Christianity. And what's verse 6 saying? No, real Christianity is the kind of Christianity that, that deals with sin through confession and repentance and transformation so that there's victory and people are loosed from the bondage of sin and we see transformation and people growing in grace. And the problem, second problem, is this cruelty towards neighbor that is really often allowed in Southern culture. And interestingly, what does true religion look like? True, true Christianity, true relationship with God looks like. It looks like tenderness and compassion. 
seeking to meet the needs of those around us where able. Now friends, the reality is that verses 6 and 7 are far more difficult to accomplish than the problems in chapter 58, verses 1 through 5, and the problems in 59, verses 1 through 8. That's actually the reality. It's easy to fake it for a time. It's easy to bless your heart your way through Christianity for a time. But eventually that catches up with us all. And so what's being presented here is actually the real religion. It's a religion where the heart has changed. And that transformed heart is working its way out through transformed hands and transformed minds and transformed mouths. And that transformation of heart, this regeneration of person, is actually even then altering the very fabric of the relationships around us. So that those that previously we would have hated, those that previously we would have seen as an inconvenience, those that previously we would have seen as being the outcast and the other, suddenly become the vehicle for our love. Hate is replaced with hope. Harshness is replaced with tenderness. Judgment is replaced with service. So the body is transformed. Now I'll be candid. Throwing stones kind of in my own camp. Having grown up in this part of the world, it's easy for us to actually not just tolerate this, this broken form of Christianity, but beyond tolerate it, it is possible for us to endorse it and even nurture it. Hypocritical, people-hating, self-serving Christianity, which is no Christianity at all. I would humbly respectfully and tenderly ask that you examine your own heart. Honestly, if you feel guilty right now, it's not because I'm making you feel guilty because I have no idea who you are. I don't know what's going on in your heart and I don't know what garden you've been growing there. I don't know what plants you've been planting. I don't know what kind of fertilizer you've been using. I don't know what you've been growing in your heart. But the Spirit of God does. And if you're under conviction, friends... That's him, not me. I don't know your heart, thankfully. I could not pastor this church if I did. I would have to quit the first week. The good news here is that he already knows your heart. He sees it rolled out before him like a scroll. It's it's like watching television in your soul, which is a horrible, horrible thought. And it's interesting that that's actually where both chapters end, 59 and 58. 59 ends, verse 15b through 21, with the promise of the Redeemer. That God 
recognizes the brokenness of mankind, the evil of our hearts, the sin that we do, the hypocrisy that we have allowed to be nurtured there, and instead of basing salvation on us, we are the problem. Instead, he provides a savior, the bright king, the suffering servant, the anointed, the Messiah, God on high, Jesus, the Lord Christ. Look at even 21, how it ends. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring, out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forever. The promise is that God is in charge of salvation. His spirit will accomplish it will accomplish it through Christ and then into us. If you actually turn back to 58, verses 8 through 14, this is fun where it really is just a list of the blessings that comes from real and robust Christianity. Verse 8, then your light will break forth like the dawn. Yay, healing will spring up uh, speedily. Yay, righteousness will go before you. Yay, the glory of God will be your rear guard. I like that idea that God's covering my back. Then you're going to call and God will answer. He'll say, I'm here, what do you need? I love that thought. He'll take away the burdens that you have. He'll, He'll He'll assist you in your ministry so that your ministry will see fruit as you care for the hungry as he blesses you in and out. And that's where you get the Sabbath illustration. Even that, he'll bless you in the Sabbath. On a side note, kids, if you stop doing homework on Sunday, your grades will go up 99 times out of 100. Very rarely ever have I seen a kid who stopped doing homework on Sunday that their grades suffered for it. Because usually it means you have to do homework on Saturday. And funny enough, when you do homework on Saturday and actually rest on Sunday, your grades will go up. Parents, your grades will go up too. Now, I mean, your grades don't get measured the same way that your children's do, but your life gets better. The Lord blesses obedience. Now, what do we do with this very quickly? And I'm going to end with this. The Lord loves his people. And he loves us so much that he sent his only son to die on the cross for us. To be raised for us that we would be the recipients of all of those good and great blessings of salvation. The problem is that it does actually require us to bow the knee. To be the full recipients of those blessings in this life that's guaranteed in the life to come. And I would challenge you to actually stop and contemplate the condition of your own heart so that you may be ready to repent for the dangers of religious people, the sins that religious people baptize and bless and act like they aren't the problem. And let's do that even as we pray now in preparation for the supper very quickly. Lord, we acknowledge we are sinners with no hope apart from your mercy and your grace. And as much as we don't like to admit it, these sins describe us probably a bit more than we would like to acknowledge. And we ask that you would forgive us. And even now that you would change us and even use the supper in a moment to do so, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.